Our scripture reading this morning uh, comes from the book of Luke. We're in chapter 23 today, and I'm going to begin at verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. You just heard from Luke chapter 23, um, and we are beginning uh, to uh, very intently walk toward uh, Easter, right, which is on April 21st, I believe is the Sunday. Um, And so we've been looking at um, only passages in Luke lately, um, and what we're going to do in the next three weeks is particularly look at the day of crucifixion and kind of zoom in a little bit um, through the account of Luke. Um, Specifically, we're going to look at the words of Jesus on uh, the cross, okay? So if you actually look through the ending of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, you'll find seven short phrases that Jesus says while on the cross, okay? Each of the gospel writers have different sets of these seven phrases based on either what they saw and heard or what other people told them they saw and heard um, or based on what they thought were the most weighty or important ones, right? And so just real quick to kind of rifle through them, here's the sayings that are in the Gospels. So Matthew and Mark both record the same saying. They record the saying where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay? You may be familiar with that one because the, um, usually the English translation includes um, the, uh, the Aramaic words in there too. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. So uh, they say both of those. Um, Luke records in chapter 23, he records the saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He records, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And he records, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then John also has three in John 19. Um, In verses 26 and 27, he records this, that Jesus says to his mother, woman, behold your son, and then he says to the disciple, which most people interpret to mean it's John, the one writing that he's actually talking to, uh, behold your mother. So Jesus kind of gives them to each other as mother and son, 
Uh, and then John 19, 28, Jesus says briefly, I thirst. Okay? And then in verse 30, John records the words of Jesus, it is finished. So those are the last words of Jesus on the cross before he dies. Um, and our series has been taking us through just Luke, right? We've been looking at the spots that are unique to Luke that nobody else records. And so in these sayings, we actually have three sayings that only Luke records. And so that's exactly what we're going to walk through the next three weeks. We're going to walk through Luke 23 in three different sections. Um, and today, first up is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I asked Nathan to read from verse 26 to give us some context um, but we'll be concentrating on verses 32 to 38. Um, but the scene is very familiar, right? Jesus is being led off to die. Um, the words began, or the passage began with, a, they grab a guy and they make him carry the cross, um, probably because Jesus just can't. He's literally passing out from exhaustion. And so they're like, okay, you know, we got to get this other guy to carry the cross. In a way it was mercy and in a way it was brutality because you see all along the way the Romans, they're torture experts and they keep doing things that'll prolong Jesus' suffering. So the carrying of the cross was kind of like, yeah, take the burden, but also, well, if he keeps carrying this thing, he'll die. And we don't want that to happen yet. Let's let somebody else carry it. You know, it's just this cruel mix of mercy and, and brutality. Um, and so that's, that's the scene. Jesus is heading toward the cross. He has this conversation with these women. Um, and then in verse 32, which I'll read here again in a second, they actually do crucify him. So this is, uh, is kind of going to be our, our station for the next couple weeks. Um, and, and rather than just simply talk about how hard the cross was and how, how excruciating it was and all the intricate details of the pain and the torture and all that stuff, which I'm sure you've probably heard it before. Maybe you watched The Passion of the Christ, and like me, you never wanted to see it again. Just like once was enough. No thank you. Um, we're, we're not just going to do that. Okay, We're not just going to sit here and have a, have a gore fest. What, what I want to do is like kind of zoom into emotion in the, in the middle of this scene that we all know about, right? But like not past the blood and past the pain, but but deeper into the heart of Jesus and kind of what's going on because he said it himself that, that what comes out of our mouth is what's in our hearts. And so these are the last things that are coming out of Jesus' heart, right? Like that's that's significant to think like what is it that's coming out of the heart of Jesus as he's actually physically uh, dying, And so that's what we're going to spend our time uh, looking at. I wanted to, I should have mentioned this before I got into it. Next week, uh, we're going to do um, our uh, starting point meeting. This is a, a time where we can just uh, greet you and welcome you and spend some time talking to you if you're newer to the church. Uh, so for 15 minutes after our service, um, we'll just have a conversation. I keep pointing over here because we do it in a room over here. Uh, so if you're newer with us, new-ish with us, or if you just want to sit and ask some questions of myself, um, or some others, uh, we'll just have a meeting. Uh, we call it starting point. So if you're just kind of checking out Stonehouse, or you're like, hey, I need to ask some questions, we really want to make sure that you can do that. Um, so we make a meeting for that first Sunday of every month so that you can do that. So that's next Sunday, because April begins tomorrow. So, all right, sorry for that pause. Let me read this. I'm going to read again, but I'm going to read starting in verse 32. 
Um, and then uh, we'll pray, and we will look into the heart of Jesus. So here it goes. It says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, or Golgotha is a famous word you may have heard, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, Ha, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an, an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Let's pray. Father, this scene is... Uh, well-known, it's very familiar. I, I would imagine most everybody, whether follower of Jesus or not, whether they've read it in the Bible or not, um, has heard at least something about the fact that Jesus died on a cross. Um, and as we typically do around Easter, we, we look at the Passion Week, we look at the the, the confrontations in Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, we look at the Last Supper. We look at the prayer in Gethsemane. We look at the, the, the betrayal through a kiss from a close friend. We look at just all these moments in the most consequential week in the history of mankind to this point. Um, and there's good reason to do so because there's much meaning here for us. And so, God, I pray that as we do for three weeks, look at something very familiar, um, that you would take us uh, kind of beyond the veil of familiarity. You'd help us to tune in, um, to not be dismissive and um, just kind of flippant with these moments, but that we would uh, be able to, to see deep in the heart of Jesus, to see... Uh, the significance of not just this moment for Jesus, but this moment uh, for the people that are watching it and even participating in it. Uh, and then, too, of course, the significance for us. Um, and we don't want that in a selfish way. We don't want to say, Jesus was thinking only of me on the cross. I mean, that's not necessarily the point. Um, though the reality of our forgiveness was definitely forefront, as we see in the words of Jesus today. So just help us find ourselves in these words, um, in these moments. Help us properly put ourselves in the place of uh, the onlookers and, and not in the place of Jesus, because we are not Jesus. We are, in fact, more like the rulers or the soldiers or the disciples. Um, we're scared, we're confused, we're even antagonistic. Um, and all the while, there is something going on in the heart of Jesus that is so completely other than um, that it deserves our time and attention. Um, so just uh, take us there and take us to a place where we see more fully uh, the deep love of Jesus for us, that we see the extent of grace uh, 
um, that we see the, the far reaches of the forgiveness of God um, through this passage and through these, these coming weeks. We love you. We need you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, well, like I just prayed and like we talk about a lot of times, when we, when we see characters in these narratives, it's, it's very important that we, we pay attention to the ones that we're quick to kind of like tag ourselves on with, you know, uh, the ones that we're like, oh, yeah, that's, that would have been me in the scenario. Um, I would have been the one making the right choice. I would have been the wise one. You know, and we have to pull back from the, the, the tendency to do that and to say, okay, how actually am I more like the ones that are kind of being confronted in this moment or kind of being challenged or maybe even, maybe even being put in their place? Um, or how, how are we close to the ones that are kind of the villains um, in the passage? And so really kind of we have two choices. We either say, well, I'm kind of more like the sad crowd or Jesus, uh, or I'm like the rulers and the soldiers. Um, and the rulers in this passage, uh, they're more than likely uh, like the chief priests in Jerusalem, uh, possibly some of the elders of the, the people there, um, possibly scribes um, or uh, Pharisees, right? Some of the ones that Jesus has had the more difficult time with. Uh, that's probably the ones that it's talking about in regards to rulers. So when, when I've been reading this and I'm thinking rulers during the crucifixion narrative, I'm thinking uh, hostile religious people. Okay, I'm thinking the people that want Jesus dead because they threaten their religious way. Okay, the way that their established religion is going. That's what's under threat to them. That's why Jesus must die. Right. So we have them. And then we also have soldiers Soldiers represent Rome because they are from the, the, the Roman guard, right? So we know that uh, Jerusalem's under Roman rule. We know that Pilate's in the house and that Herod is nearby and that both of those guys are involved in like the trial process of Jesus. And eventually Pilate just goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to calm the crowd here politically. Like he makes a, he makes a political move, an expedient political move. He's like, I'm going to try to to, to kind of maintain the vote, so to say, and do what the people want. And he even says, even though, even though Jesus is innocent, I'm going I'm to let you guys do what you want with him because apparently there's, there is some sort of deep anger going on here that, that cannot be satisfied unless this man is killed. Um, so then he hands him over to be killed, and the only one who has authority to kill a prisoner uh, is Rome. Right? The, the Jews are not in political power, so they have no ability to uh, exact justice in a political way, you know what I mean, by enforcing law. They can't do that because Rome is in charge. And so the only way for Jesus to die is for him to die at the hands of the Romans, so therefore the soldiers in this passage are Roman soldiers who, I mean, you know, like if you've ever watched any of those crazy Roman things, you know these guys are just, they're just the brutes, right? They, 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 they blood lust, they, they enjoy pain, they like dominating others through power. Uh, it's just, that's their way. And so when we, when we read soldiers, we, we read uh, kind of the ruling world, right? The, the world's power. Okay, so we have two things that are in direct contrast to the nature and the character of Jesus here. We have religious spirit or, or religion that wants Jesus dead, and we have like the world power or just the, the force of the, the modern thought 
uh, that, that thought and that day. That also wants Jesus dead because he's a threat to both the religion and the political rule. Okay, the, the, the kingdom that Jesus has been teaching about and preaching about and bringing forward through his healing and through his acts of mercy and his kindness and his reaching out to the people that shouldn't be reached out to and giving mercy to the people that don't deserve to have mercy, like all of this, this whole behavior of Jesus is, is at odds with both of these two things, right? And so in this moment, we can say, I either identify with Jesus and yeah, heck yeah, I'm at odds with both of the world and religion, or we can back back and go, okay, I see that sometimes I'm on the side of religion, and I want Jesus to shut up so I can stay in my nice little religious atmosphere and keep believing the things that I believe because Jesus is an offense to kind of my established religion, or we can go over to the other side and we can be like, okay, but I'm in the world system, and I, 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 I bought into everything that this world says, and, and that's my prevailing power, and Jesus is a threat to that power because he's actually in opposition to that power as well, right? Where am I? And if we're honest, we probably teeter back and forth, especially if we've dabbled with Christianity or we are Christians, or we've explored it. Like we've, we've been both in the place where Jesus has threatened our religion and Jesus has threatened our friendliness with the world, right? Both of these things stand in stark contrast to Jesus, right? And, and then we just see it, um, we see it kind of put in a theater, right? Because we have mocking and scoffing on these two sides. And then what do we have in the middle? A dying man offering forgiveness with his final breath, right? We have people who are so under threat and even though they have risen to power, they're using that power to absolutely obliterate another human being who's been established as innocent. And then we have the innocent one who is willing to give up his innocence, right? He doesn't come to the court and argue no, 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 I don't deserve to die like you would and like I would. No, 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 my lawyer and my friend and my neighbor and my calendar and my bank account and my receipts and where my license plate was, had the photography thing taken by the weird, you know, watching eye of my government. Like all these things established that I'm innocent, I should not die, right? Jesus is not making any argument that he should not die the whole way along. The only one who has ever had the right to fully make that argument and stand justified is giving up the argument. It's showing us a completely different character base and deep root inside of him than these other two people who are actually the ones enjoying power and prestige in their day. It's just, it's a complete reversal of this world and everything that is going on. And it's stunning that Jesus offers these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, while crucified, right? So all of the gospel writers do this. If you look at verse 32, it says, when they came to the place of the, uh, uh, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Every gospel writer does that. Just a small little, there they crucified him, right? And we know because we've seen the movies, seen the, right? Like we know what that small little phrase entails. We know all the lead up to that phrase, right? He gets paraded in the praetorium. He gets beat by a bunch of Roman guards. He gets whipped. Um, he gets disrobed and then re-robed and then mocked with a crown of thorns. All that stuff, you know, carrying the, all that stuff and then there they crucify him. And then these statements begin. So that has all happened physically to Jesus. And now he's saying, Father, forgive them, right? Just a stunning moment. And I don't know, I don't think any of us can... I mean, we can't hold a candle to this, like, physical 
comparison, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever been in excruciating pain, like had to go to the ER pain, or like in real fear for your life, like, oh my God, I'm, I'm dying. Like that active fear of like, I am now dying. I don't know if anybody's been in that place. I'm assuming you've all had pain, right? But if it's like, I think I'm dying pain, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I certainly haven't. And I struggled this week. I'm like, I'm trying to get into this moment, right? Like feel the feels and understand what it took for Jesus to say this. And the only thing I could come up with, and I, I'm really not trying to, to kind of mock Jesus here, and I'm not trying to make light of your pain here, but the only thing that I could come up with uh, was this thing in my past that's related to hockey. Sorry if sports analogies aren't for you, but this is the closest I could get, was with these practices that we used to have called dry land practice. Um, so I grew up in Minnesota, and the snow falls usually toward the end of October or beginning of November, but our hockey season starts in October, and so often before the snow is on the ground, and when I was younger, we used to play outside all the time, almost all the time. We had very limited indoor rink access. We flooded fields and skated on ponds and went to playgrounds where they had, or uh, city parks where they actually put up hockey boards. It's glorious. And then you just fill the boards with water. You just spray water in there with a the fire hose and then it freezes overnight and that's what you skate on. So before all that was available, you still had to practice, right? Because it's like season's coming. Like it's October's coming. We got to play. And in order to play, right, you got to get a bunch of teenage boys after having a great summer back in shape ready for a grueling hockey season, which is no easy task. And so the beginning of our hockey season was these things called dry line practice. They were basically the cruelest cardio exercise you could possibly imagine done over and over and over and over again. Um, and so we would go either to a field or sometimes to a gym, um, or a lot of times we'd go to one of the rinks that didn't have ice on it yet, and there was the boards around, and we could like throw a, a kickball and use that as kind of a puck and do some practice stuff, like drills to kind of arrange, like, how do you do certain plays or whatever. But those, those practices always ended with just torture. They just flat out as much torture as humanly possible for as long as possible until somebody either, you know, throws up or passes out. Like, that, that was the goal of our coaches. And, man, my first or my final year of youth hockey, this was before I went into high school, I had these, these just out of high school guys as coaches. And... <laughs> Just awesome, awesome coaches. We looked up to every one of them. They were so great, and they hated us. <laughs> In order to make us good, they hated us, right? So we would do these drills. We would run. We would put weight vests on and have to run, right? Like, we would do wall sits. Like, you ever done wall sits like this? So you're up against the wall, and you're just like that, like, forever and in a row. And they would come and tickle us, and they would pass weights, like, from one end to the other. They're like... Nope, get it moving, you know, pass this weight back and forth. They would grab kickballs and just throw them mercilessly at our heads. And, I mean, it was just like, it w and if you moved, you had to, like, run and then do push-ups and then get back on the wall again. And it was like, and then the clock restarted, right? So it was like, all right, wall sits for 22 minutes, boom. And then if you fell, then everybody would hate you because the clock would restart. I mean, it was just torture, right? And, like, I, I remember not being able to think of anything. Right? I remember having to concentrate so hard on simply breathing and not shaking. You know what I mean? Like not quivering to where my legs would just fall. Like that's the closest I can think. That's the closest I can think where all that was on my mind was surviving. The only thing I could think of was the relief of the pain that was about to come. 
Whether it was five minutes away or 10 minutes away or 40 minutes away, that's all I could think of, right? And that's, like, that's where I went this week. I'm thinking, if I'm Jesus, all I can think of is when is it going to end, right? All I'm thinking of is just next breath, next breath. You know, like, I can't even go past self-preservation when I think of the cross, right? I can't physically, in my own being, I cannot get past the idea of thinking of anything other than I've just got to get to the next four seconds, right? And so in that moment, and I don't know if you ever ran a dry land practice or if you went to the ER and you thought you were going to die or wherever that excruciating moment was where the only thing you're thinking of is am I going to make it, right? In that moment... What is on Jesus' mind and what is on Jesus' heart is his enemies, right? Like, there's no chance I'm praying for Craig Minnie, my coach, during my dry life. There's no chance I'm praying for that man, right? I'm wishing for a sudden onset heart attack for a 20-year-old, right? Like, I'm like, maybe he'll die right now. Maybe he'll pass out, <laughs> Right? Maybe he'll trip, hit his head, and we can be done. Like That's what's on my mind, not, oh, dear Jesus, please forgive him. It's the, it's the last thing on my mind. Right? Maybe, maybe occasionally I thought about like my brother or like my girlfriend at the time or like the party coming up that weekend. Maybe I'm thinking, maybe about good things, but definitely not the enemy that's before me. It's just absolutely otherworldly what is going on here with Jesus. He not only just doesn't think of his own preservation, he thinks of the ones that are making his pain a reality in that moment. Jesus is beaten and humiliated, and he's in a mind space, and he's thinking of others. It's just striking. And when we, we began this series, we, we called it the extent of grace because we saw in the book of Luke how Luke kept telling stories about the people who seemingly are beyond the reach of grace, right? Children, sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, Samaritans, you know, all of the low lowlifes. So we, we called it the extent of grace because we were saying, man, Jesus and his gospel message is going and reaching all the ones that you think are beyond the grace of God, right? And here toward the end, we see we got to take that extent of grace just a little bit further and add in the mix the murderers of Jesus, right? It goes beyond just simply the sinners and the unfit and the lepers and the poor. It goes all the way to the very ones that put him on the cross, that put the nails in there, that stand laughing at him while he's in pain. That's the extent of grace. All the way to the enemies. That's how far this really reaches. This is the forgiving heart of Jesus. And I think what's so striking about this moment is that Jesus is both asking God the Father to grant this forgiveness, and at the very same moment, he's making the granting of that forgiveness possible, right? 
He's saying, Father, forgive them. How does the Father forgive? The Father forgives by executing his justice, not on the sinner, but on Jesus. So at that moment, Jesus is wearing the execution of God's wrath and saying, give the forgiveness that I'm earning right now. It's this amazing collision moment where Jesus is saying, what I'm doing right now, activate. What I am paying for right now, give to them. The very ones that are doing what's causing this pain, give them the forgiveness that I am earning in this moment, right? It's just just colossal moment. It's this huge collision of reality. And I, and I think in order to really understand the weight of it, I, I want to just look a little bit more at forgiveness. And in order to do so, I'm, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to actually read two pages uh, of a book from Tim Keller. And you'll have some of the quotes on the screen, so hopefully you don't fall asleep as I track through this. But Tim lays out, and I remember the first time I heard this in a, in a sermon, and then I read it. Um, this, is a, this is a book, basically, that walks you through the Gospel of Mark. So if you ever want to study a gospel and then read a book, I'd encourage you, study Mark and read this book. It's a super great, hand-in-hand uh, read. But there's just a deep understanding of forgiveness that, that Tim helps out with here um, in a section of this book. And so I'm just going to kind of read through this. You'll see some of the quotes on the screen. So in talking about forgiveness, he says, when somebody really wrongs you, a debt is established that has to be paid by someone. Okay? It can happen at an economic level. Level. So for instance, what if a friend of yours accidentally smashes a lamp in your apartment? One of two things can happen as, as a result. Either you can make him pay. That'll be $100, please. Or you can say, I forgive you. That's okay. But in the latter case, what happens to the $100? You have to pay it yourself. Or you have to lose $100 worth of light and get used to a darker room. Either your friend pays the cost for what was done or you absorb the cost. See? This works at levels beyond just economics too, right? When someone robs you of an opportunity robs you of happiness, of reputation, or takes away something else that you'll never get back, that creates a sense of debt. Justice has been violated. This person owes you, he says. Once you sense that debt, again, there are only two things you can do. One thing you can do is to try and make that person pay. You can try to destroy their opportunities or ruin their reputation. You can hope they suffer or you can actually see to it. But there's a bigger problem with that. As you're making them pay off the debt, as you're making them suffer because of what they did to you, you're becoming like them. You're becoming harder, colder. You're becoming like the perpetrator. Evil wins. So what else can you do? The alternative is to forgive. But there's nothing easy about real forgiveness. When you want to harbor vengeful thoughts, when you want so much to carry out vengeful action, but you refuse them in an effort to forgive, it hurts. When you refrain, when you forgive, it's agony. Why? Instead of making the other person suffer, you're absorbing the cost yourself. You aren't trying to get your reputation back by tearing their reputation down. You are forgiving them, and it's costing you. That's what forgiveness is. True forgiveness 
always entails suffering. So the debt of wrong doesn't vanish. Either they pay or you pay. But here's the irony. Only if you pay that price of forgiveness, only if you absorb the debt, is there any chance of righting the wrong. If you confront somebody with what they've done wrong, while you've got vengeance in your heart, they probably won't listen to you. They'll sense that you are not just seeking justice, but revenge, and they'll reject anything you say. You'll just uh, perpetuate the cycle of retaliation, retaliation, retaliation. Only if you have refrained from vengeance and paid the cost of forgiveness will you have any hope of getting them to listen to you, of seeing their own error. And even if they do not listen to you at first, your forgiveness breaks the cycle of furthering reprisals. So if we know that forgiveness always entails suffering for the forgiver and that the only hope of rectifying and righting wrongs comes by paying the cost of suffering, then it should not surprise us when God says, the only way I can forgive the sins of the human race is to suffer. Either you will have to pay the penalty for sin, or I will, God says. Sin always entails a penalty. Guilt can't be dealt with unless someone pays. The only way God can pardon us and not judge us is to go to the cross and absorb it into himself. I must suffer, Jesus says. At this very moment, Jesus is earning what he offers, right? By absorbing the cost of the broken lamp, he's able to pray, Father, forgive them. The cost is no longer on your shoulders because it was taken on Jesus's, right? That is the purchase and the offer of forgiveness at the very same moment, and it is glorious. It is a glorious good news message that Jesus, in the middle of his suffering, is holding on to his ultimate purpose, and that is that he will stay the course to earn what he's offering us. He's taking it on the head, so to say, so that he can offer the very forgiveness that he prays for. And right in the middle of this moment, we see these rulers and these soldiers mocking Jesus. And this is very interesting, these statements, because there's a deep irony in the statements from these rulers and these soldiers, right? Basically, both sides says, save yourself. And, that, and that's the true statement of religion and the world. Both say, save yourself. Okay? How does religion say, save yourself? Religion says, save yourself by recognizing there's some sort of gap between me and God. Right? Most religions would acknowledge this. Either God has got some greater consciousness or God is bigger and smarter and stronger than I or he's holy and I'm not or he's older and I'm foolish and young, he's old and wise and I'm foolish, right? Most religions would acknowledge there's some gap between me and God, whichever God that is. And then, therefore, most religions would say, do something to make up for the gap. You've got to do something. So either get better morally, right, or attain a different state of consciousness, right, 
or absorb suffering or disembody yourself somehow, something, right? And incorrectly taught Christianity falls into this category because incorrectly taught Christianity tells you, Jesus died for you, now you better do something really impressive to earn that. So do better, try harder, look better, don't do this, don't do that, do do this, do do that, do's and don'ts, whatever, it's all about you and what you can do, you better save yourself. That's what religion says, right? The world, on the, other, on the other hand, also says save yourself, but it says it completely different, right? The world looks over there across the aisle at religion and says, well, that's stupid. There's no God, okay? And then, very next breath, constructs their own God, their own God of performance, their own God of pleasure, their own God of comfort, their own God of popularity, their own God of some sort of attainment, since God doesn't exist, then just figure your own life out for yourself. Define you for you, and then just go get that, right? So just forget the idea of God and come over here to our side and get a lot of money, and then you'll be happy. Or come over to our side and get rid of a lot of money, and then you'll be happy. Or come over to here on our side and pursue this cause, and then you'll be happy. Or that cause, and then you'll be happy. And you've got to, again, do, 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 don't, 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 and save yourself. Both say, save yourself. The rulers look at Jesus scoffing and say, ha, 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 he saved other people. He can't even save himself. Because according to their construct, the only salvation available is self-willed salvation. According to a religious construct, a good moral teacher should never die for being good and moral. He should be victorious. He should lead us to deliverance. He should come in, take the throne, kick Rome out, and give us peace forevermore. That's what the rulers are mocking. They're like some Messiah. <laughs> He's dying. How pathetic. What a pathetic Christ. What a pathetic chosen one. If he's really chosen, right? And then over here on the world, the rulers are like, Savior, you're supposed to be, look at the word they use, king. You're supposed to be a king. Hail Caesar. What is Caesar? King by force. King by reckoning. King by power. King by invasion. King by armies and brutality and conquering your enemies through killing them. You're supposed to be a king. Save yourself, Jesus. Right? We see both of these things in our hearts at the cross where we look at Jesus and we say, surely a self-denying death is not the way to victory. Surely taking it and not fighting back is not the way of God. Surely laying yourself down and being trampled by wicked evil people who should be judged and thrown in jail. Surely, surely that's not the way. And all along, Jesus has been saying, yes, it is. The way is through submission. The way is through sacrifice. The way is through thinking less of self and more of others. The way is not vengeance, but turning the other cheek. The way is not repayment, but forgiveness. The way is to give a cloak when they've already stole your tunic. The way is to lay your life down. And the rulers in religion 
scream, surely that's not the way. And the world around us scream, surely that's not the way. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them all. Forgive them all because they don't know what they're doing. The irony in these statements is the rulers and the soldiers say, save yourself. Right? But it's through not saving himself that salvation is really coming. It's through actually laying his life down that Jesus is displaying his power over life. Right? We have this moment where we look at Christ and think, I'm called to a bigger, better, different, otherworldly kingdom that understands what real life is in a completely different way than the world understands it. And I've been shown the way through Jesus who could have saved himself but didn't. Who could have vanquished his enemies but instead died at their hands. Right? Lord, take this cup from me, but yet not your will. Or not my will, but yours. Not fighting back. Not taking up an army. Not calling on angels to save me. But giving my life. So both religion and the world says, save yourself. Save yourself. And Jesus, like we saw a couple weeks ago, says, take up your cross. You'll find your life when you lose your life and you find it truly in me. That's where you'll find life. Not in the religious save yourself and not in the worldly save yourself. The upside down reality of the kingdom of heaven is displayed right here in the life and the death of Jesus because he actually is the chosen one and he's dying, right? He actually is the king and he's dying, right? It's not that he would have been if he could have saved himself. He would have been Messiah if he would have got off the cross. He would have been king if he would have defeated. He is because and we've never seen a king like it since, ever, completely selfless and willing to lay down everything to save lepers and children and women and tax collectors and prostitutes and the very ones killing him, his enemies. Jesus does not destroy his enemies, but he earns forgiveness for them by being destroyed by them. This is the offer of grace for us. The extent of grace goes all the way to those who would mock and scoff at the foolish, pitiful display of Jesus on the cross. <laughs> Can't believe it. Right? Like one of the greatest things that ever happens on the planet is that somebody who used to dismiss Jesus falls in love with him. <laughs> right? Someone who looks at the cross with, <laughs> who used to do that, suddenly looks at the cross with tears, falls on their knees and says, you are the king you are the chosen one. Your way is the way. I recognize the world and religion don't offer me any salvation at all. You offer me the only salvation because you absorbed the debt that I owed so that I could hear the words, Father, forgive them, so that that forgiveness could be mine. And so these next few weeks, we'll look at this Messiah who makes you an offer at the cost of his own life. Right? It's his life for yours. It's his death in your place. It's true forgiveness through.
through him. Because the one that we put on the cross prays that we would be forgiven. This is the glorious good news of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for so often we don't know what we're doing. Often we don't recognize the tendency to dismiss you. Often we don't recognize the uh, just the, the dismissive nature of our attitude towards you. Often we don't recognize when we run to religion to save ourselves or, or, or when we run to the world to, to secure our salvation. We, we, we're, we're so slow to see when we do these things. Sometimes just painfully so. We don't recognize how deep and how far and how amazing your grace really is. And so I pray that by your spirit, through your work, that you would uh, again and again awaken our hearts to just see the immense capacity that you have for forgiveness. That even though you were at that very moment in a physical place of barely being able to think past yourself, at that moment you thought not just of your friends but of your enemies. You thought loving forgiving thoughts towards those who were actually causing your pain. If that's true on the cross, how much more true is that right now, today, that even though today, even though yesterday, even though tomorrow, I cause you pain, you still pray for my forgiveness. You offer me your forgiveness. You give me your grace. This is a love that is far beyond anything we've ever seen, God. It is so completely otherworldly that in some ways we don't even have categories for it. That's why we need reminders week in and week out, day in and day out. We need to remember what it is exactly that your kingdom looks like because we lose sight. We so often fall into one of these camps, either doing it the world's way to save ourselves or doing it religion's way to save ourselves. God, might we drop both self-salvation projects and embrace the true salvation of Christ, knowing that his prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that it was answered, that it is answered, and that it will be answered, both in your enemies' lives, in our lives, in hopefully many of the people that we know and love that don't know you yet, God, May this great offer of forgiveness be heard, be truly seen and felt, and then be embraced. God, we know that's only possible through your Spirit's work, so please bring that Holy Spirit to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.